0: Hi, welcome to New Books and Middle East Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Asad, one of the co-hosts of the channel and your host for our conversation today. Our guest today is Simon Wolfgang Fuchs, and we'll be talking about his latest book, In a Pure Muslim Land, Shi'ism Between Pakistan and the Middle East. Simon is a lecturer in Islamic and Middle East Studies at the University of Freiburg in Germany. His interests and work primarily center around how the Islamic scholarly tradition is debated and negotiated in modern Muslim societies with a focus on the Middle East, Central, and South Asia. Specifically, he looks at religious authority, sectarianism, the Islamic schools of law, Islamic political thought, and the relationship of Islam and science. The transnational nature of his work has led him to conduct fieldwork research in Egypt, Pakistan, India, Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. Prior to joining Freiburg in October 2017, he was a research fellow in Islamic studies at Gonville and Caius College at the University of Cambridge. He completed his PhD in September 2015 at Princeton University under the supervision of Professor Muhammad Qasim Zaman with a dissertation entitled, Relocating the Centers of Shi'i Islam. Religious Authority, Reform, and the Limits of the Transnational and Colonial India and Pakistan. His latest book, which is the subject of our discussion today, is an extension of that thesis, and it is entitled, In a Pure Muslim Land, Shiaism Between Pakistan and the Middle East, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2019. I will read a brief blurb on the back of the book for our listeners. Centering Pakistan in a story of transnational Islam stretching from South Asia to the Middle East, Simon Wolfgang Fuchs offers the first in-depth ethnographic history of the intellectual production of Shi'is and their religious competitors in this land of the pure. The notion of Pakistan as the pinnacle of modern global Muslim aspiration forms a crucial component of this story. It has empowered Shi'is who form about 20% of the country's population, to advance alternative conceptions of the religious hierarchy while claiming the support of towering Grand Ayatollahs in Iran and Iraq. Fuchs shows how popular Pakistani preachers and scholars have boldly tapped into the esoteric potential of Shiaism, occupying a creative and at times disruptive role as brokers, translators, and self-confident pioneers of contemporary Islamic thought. They have indigenized the Iranian revolution and formulated their own ideas for fulfilling the original promise of Pakistan. Challenging typical views of Pakistan as a mere Shi'i backwater, Fuchs argues that its complex religious landscape represents how a local South Asian Islam may open up space for new intellectual contributions to global Islam. So without further ado, I now welcome Simon to our podcast. Welcome, Simon. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Asad, for having me. It's really a great honor to be able to talk about the book, and I'm really excited uh, of, you know, about the session that we, we will be having today.
0: Of course, of course. So Simon, as I'm sure you know, we like to start these interviews at the New Books Network, always with a brief biological account of our guests for our listeners. Now, you have a stellar, and if I can say so myself, quite an enviable CV, of the four major Islamicate languages, you, i.e., Arabic, Persian, Urdu, and Turkish, you're proficient in the first three. Um, you're a native speaker of none, and you've done research in libraries across various countries and several regions. You've met with high-ranking scholars in the Islamic tradition, and I presume your, ch- your journey. Of exploring Islamic intellectual history is still ongoing. So on the topic of intellectual history, tell us a little bit about your own intellectual history. What brought you here? What inspired you and why Shi'ism between Pakistan and the Middle East?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, thanks so much for this question. It's really interesting when I started out to do Islamic studies in the German context, you know, we were very much focused on the Middle East. So I started out with Arabic and later then I also did Persian, uh, studying in Iran and earlier in Syria, and I really had originally no interest whatsoever mm-hmm. in South, South Asia. I, uh, it's really nothing that you encountered during your studies. It wasn't really I wasn't really encouraged, you know, to study this other region. It was really seen as as marginal and not particularly interesting. And I remember before um, really coming to. Princeton and and embarking on this project uh, in in general, I I read uh, Mohammed Qasem Zaman's book shortly after I think it was published in 2002 on the ulama in contemporary Islam, Custodians of Change. And I remember that I enjoyed reading it, but I felt, well, you know, if he had only focused more on the really important olama in the Middle East, so why all this stuff on the Obandis and these South Asian guys whom no one really knows mm-hmm. and why should I really care about all of them and what's what's the point and then it took a couple of years <laughs> until I until I saw the light, you know, when I originally applied to Princeton, I was also interested in a completely different project so I suggested that I wanted to work on the Of Ibn Taymiyyah during these centuries when he wasn't such a big and influential scholar, so basically before the end of the 19th century. But, you know, then life intervenes (laughs) and I encountered my supervisor, Qasem Zaman, who's just not only a wonderful scholar, but also an extremely gifted teacher. And then, um, you know, this was one component that suddenly South Asia came in. And then I th- I thought, you know, this was also my own ignorance before starting the PhD that I thought I would be really interested in Islamic law. But after taking a course uh, for an entire semester where we did the nuts and bolts of Islamic law, which are mainly, you know, discussing sales contracts and URF and customary law and this sort of stuff, then I realized, well... Maybe at the end of the day, I'm really more interested in theology. And then, of course, the she context is, to a certain extent, even more interesting than the uh, So let's say the Sunni Sunni approach to uh, theology, since they have to grapple with many more questions. So how do you defend Tawhid and monotheism if uh, you really also have these imams there who are really influential and semi-divine or superhuman figures? And how do you reconcile all of this? And so this requires much more intellectual labor, I think, also to defend a stringent monotheism. And this was the other... I would say appeal, you know, she Islam had to me in particular. And then this all came together after I did some research and realized that, uh, you know, we know a lot about she's in Lebanon or recently there has been a lot of work done on she's in Iraq. And of course, Iran has always been of interest, but, uh, the Shi community in Pakistan, even though it's the second largest worldwide, had been largely neglected, and the studies that existed focused on very specific issues. Um, but there was a lot of room still to explore and to discover. And uh, I became extremely excited and was not disappointed. Wow, I would thank say. thank you
0: for that. And so I guess, in addition to Arabic and Persian, you had to pick up a third language um,
1: to access to access Pakistan, which is that's right so yeah this happened this happened and also at at Princeton so that's I think also the beauty of the PhD system in the US that you're really given time to reinvent yourself and to devote time to new uh, languages and yeah in my case this was Urdu. At this time Urdu wasn't even offered at Princeton since we don't really had this focus on South Asia and also you know I was attached to the Department of Near Eastern Studies where you'd also think that South Asia doesn't really uh, feature in, in the focus of such Department, but then I started actually uh, doing some Hindi in um, at Princeton, and then uh, the real Urdu learning really happened when I was in Pakistan. And at this time, in 2011, when I got to the country the first time, there was no official program or that catered to foreigners due to the security situation. So it was all much more informal but i think you know as you i'm not telling you any secrets if you start out with arabic and persian then urdu and especially uh, urdu that deals with religious ideas and text is not uh, so i mean the the distance is not too far to to also obtain another language excellent
0: so. excellent well thank you thank you for sharing that and i think you touch up, touch upon a very important point about uh, disciplinary boundaries which we're, which we're going to go over um, further in this discussion Um, So let's move on to the book. Um, You know, there's a lot going on here, and I'd like to to work through it chronologically. Um, So you begin your study in the the late colonial period, shortly before the independence in 1947, and on the cusp of the partition of the subcontinent into what became known as India and what became known as spot split between West Pakistan and East Pakistan. Um, One thing that really stood out to me were the rigorous debates that took place within and between Shi'i figures prior to the state's founding about what their place would be in this new uh, Islamic country or quote-unquote Islamic state, so to say. Um, you know The Muslim, Muslim League was now ready and steady to, to found this new country, and many of the Shi'i ulema as well as the intellectuals were worried because it was predominantly Sunni, even though um, in practice they were all secular uh, you do several things in this chapter. You map out the internal tensions between the Shi'i clerics and Western educated Shi'i intellectuals. You discuss how Shi'i scholars position themselves vis-a-vis Sunni ones while also offering a novel approach to sectarianism. You, ha- you make a great intervention with regards to the sectarian debates that took place uh, and the conflicts that took place, especially in Lucknow. Uh, and you lay the groundwork for exploring the international dimensions of Shi'i thought during the last decades of British rule. So I was wondering if you could uh, share a little bit more uh, about your findings during this this critical foundational period before we go into post 47
1: sure no I'm happy to do so so I guess you know of course I was really inspired also f- for for this period of time by the great work of my uh, friend and colleague Justin Jones at the University of o- uh, Oxford who has really published uh, you know, an excellent work on Shi Islam in colonial India and even though I agree with many of Justin's findings so there were some issues that I took or some aspects that I took issue with, for example, when he makes the case that Lucknow really emerges as this unassailable dominating center of Shi Islam in, in the subcontinent where Shi' scholars are also working or rethinking Shi Islam in a way that it becomes it's somewhat freestanding and its own religion independent of sunni islam because first of all i think there are it's not only lucknow you know where things are happening also the punjab emerges as an interesting shi center in its own right at the time but then also, I feel it doesn't really do justice to you know what you just mentioned. Also, this internal diversity and especially this conflict between traditionally educated ulama and also a modernist uh, streak that we not. Only see in Sunni Islam emerging, but also in the Shi context. And for me, in particularly helpful were the proceedings of the All India Shia Conference. This was also meant, you know, to unite the Shi community, drawing in modernists, modern professionals, bureaucrats, but then also these mujtahids. Uh, And, but over time, you know, in the 1910s, 1920s, this organization really redefines itself basically the the mujtahids of Lucknow get kicked out and then modernist voices take over who are extremely critical of these ulama who don't really know what the shi community needs at the time and we see extremely harsh criticism also of the mujtahids being out of touch with the needs of the shi community so that's one development that i found quite striking but then the other one is also that uh, i don't see it so much as shi islam in this time emerging as its own freestanding religion but it's more really an effort to redefine shi islam as original islam and to claim it you know not really to uh, to establish something that l- runs in parallel with the majority's sunni islam but uh, really as claiming that if sunnis were only um, would only see the light or would only think clearly about the Major tenets of their faith, then they would also realize or they should come to the conclusion that she Islam offers a much more convincing interpretation of early Islamic history, of questions of how to relate to God, of, you know, how to, how transcendent uh, conception of God should be and all these sorts of questions. And, um, This was definitely also another aspect that I found uh, quite striking. And it once again reminds us also when we talk about this late colonial period and communalism and, you know, the the questions of conflicts between Hindus and Muslims. It it makes also a lot of sense to look at the internal conflicts within all these communities. You know, not even, of course, not only the Muslim communities are extremely diverse, but then also it's not sufficient to... To narrow this down to a conflict then between Sunnis and Shiis, but also within Shi Islam, there's a huge uh, controversy about you know how to reconcile uh, religion with mo- modernity going on as well. So tying all of this together, this is basically what I was trying to do in the first chapter of the book.
0: It's, it's really interesting how, when, in, you know, with regards to the internal conflict within Shiism, um, there's a debate between. You know what you, whom you describe as the reformists versus the traditionalists. And the nature of the debates that took place between these two groups, um, legitimacy is claimed with regards to um, how distinct they were from their Sunni opponents, or the traditionalists, uh, rephrase, the traditionalists would attempt to de- delegitimate the reformists by pointing their proximity to Sunnism. Um and to me it just fascinated me with regards to the ways in which we you know, we think about how Islam was, was was contested right before independence, um, you know, right at the cusp, and even at even at that critical stage, um, there was no agree- agreement with regards to what direction Islam should take. You know, forget for, forget that. Even within Shiism and Shi'i groups, there were there was no agreement.
1: Right. No, totally. I would, uh, you know, this is, I guess, what also was really surprising to me. And I think there's also much more room to, uh, to identify additional figures or other scholars that we haven't really, um, haven't really looked at. So, especially this time period, the late colonial period was really striking for me when you, um, when you go to the British Library, for example, and you have, of course, these documents on Sunni Shi tensions in Lucknow in the 1930s. Um, and these files are extremely well worn. You know, people have looked at them. Uh, several times, scholars have written about these conflicts, the so-called Tabara agitation in in, 19, in the 1930s in Lucknow. But then, if you uh, would consider or consult what they label as vernacular tracts in the British Library, often if you consult this material, then the pages have to be uh, cut open, you know, because no one has really looked at, at this material. And a lot of polemical stuff, but also. Really interesting interpretations of Islamic history, so I would encourage everyone <laughs> really that there is, <laughs> there's there's so much left. Yeah, and I of course could only scratch the surface uh, as okay. you know it's quite natural well, with a project you've like done,
0: that. You've done so much, um, more 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 than enough, honestly. With with you know, the, I want to really move on now with regards to the key in, uh, one of the key interventions you make. Uh, in your book, which really stood out to me, is the interrogation of the notion that Pakistan was or is a Shi'i backwater. So you show in in your book how in the 60s and 70s that there were rigorous intellectual debates taking place among the intellectual elite within the country. And you also argue that, quote, the vocal acknowledgement of transnational authority in general and the embrace of the seemingly rigid system of emulation in particular does by no means render local agency obsolete, end quote. And you do so uh, by examining the indigenous and internal South Asian intellectual debates on taklid, i.e. emulation, um, through exploring Pakistani Shii journals like Al-Hujjat and Payam Amal, which you assembled from libraries in Lahore and in Sargoda, um, as well as from the personal libraries of Grand Ayatollah Burujirdi in Qom and Sayyid Muhsin al-Hakim in Najaf, So could you tell us a little bit about what conclusions you came to after examining these debates and going through these journals with regards to how the the intellectuals and the ulama in in Pakistan in the 60s and 70s um, embraced transnational authority without compromising their own local agency?
1: Yeah, sure. No, I'm more than happy to do so. So I think originally I started out with two very diverging opinions on you know what how shi islam in pakistan would relate to the wider shi world and there are uh, the people especially anthropologists who would make the case you know these transnational actors these grand ayatollahs the sources of emulation sitting in qom or najaf don't really matter to shiis in pakistan so they are much more in, interested in in local forms of religious uh, you know processions and mourning rituals and this sort of stuff. And there are other people who would really make the case that um, uh, since South Asia is so peripheral, only the the mujtahids in the centers of Shi learning really matter. And when going through all of this material, several things stood out for me that to a certain extent, in the 20th century, we really see this paradigm shift as far as religious authority in a Shi context is concerned. The grand ayatollahs become... Much more approachable. You can contact them. You know, of course, nowadays it's even easier. But also, then in the 1960s and earlier, you could approach them via you know telegrams, or you could uh, travel much more e- easily. And and Pakistani scholars would, of course, also go and study for long periods of time in the in the shrine city. So there was there was in- intensive interconnectedness uh, and the the grand ayatollahs in the centers would send representatives to pakistan to collect religious taxes on their behalf but also to support schools to hand out scholarships be really being involved on the ground traveling you know setting up programs to translate material into urdu uh, so there was this in in this intense interaction but at the same time what i found particularly interesting is that some scholars really made a case of uh, emphasizing this, this, the overarching authority of these scholars, uh, but also setting themselves up as being the the sole uh, arbitrators or of this influence, that they would claim in every age only one supreme overarching mujtahid exists in the centers. And then basically he forms a hierarchy from which uh, everyone is dependent and they would set themselves up as the only representative of this particular person, for example, in the context of Pakistan. And being really close to the center but in being at the same time indispensable for the for local shis on the ground who had no right to Organize or to, or to uh, form alternative forms of religious authority, of communal authority. So this is definitely one aspect that I see. So by at the same time claiming this closeness and the overarching importance of one particular scholar, you set yourself up as really someone who is in charge for Pakistan, who is delegated to, you know, run sort of the show in a in a Pakistani setting. But what happens then if you establish such a close connection is also that we see particular periods of time. For example, you mentioned Mohsin al-Hakim, and he was a very crucial and overarching figure. When he then died in 1970, afterwards, there was really a period of uncertainty in in a Pakistani context or also worldwide, where it wasn't really clear who would become his successor on a worldwide stage, who would take over the mantle of being the next really big source of uh, emulation. And at this time, local scholars use this time period of uncertainty uh, and suddenly they would no longer simply transmit legal opinions formulated by Muslim al-Hakim and Najaf, but they would start answering fatwas, uh, requests for fatwas themselves, for example. So this is one particularly interesting development. And then I think another aspect that we see is that, uh, and this refers back to this paradigm shift that I that I wanted to mention earlier, as far as the authority of Najaf and Qom is concerned, that um, Also, I think the internal debate in Pakistan shifts between especially traditionalists and more, you know, esoterically or, and yeah, traditionalist, esoteric minded scholars and reformists, because even traditionalist scholars who would emphasize the esoteric potentials of Shi Islam and would claim that we could have a direct contact to the imams. We don't really need this scholarly hierarchy, uh, this established hierarchy developed during the time of occultation after the disappearance of the 12th imam, you know, which sees this system of being of Muqallids and these sources of emulation but we could have direct contacts uh, with with the Imam so even if we focus on this we still have to make arguments for a rejection of this hierarchy by referring to the leading scholars in in the center so um, so it's really not an not a source of authority or not uh, a, a, a shift in the debate that even these traditionalists can ignore so they also have to make the case basically that if you read the tradition if excuse me, if you read the leading scholars in the center's uh, you know carefully, then you will understand that they don't subscribe to any reformist positions. So they would not, uh, they would not require Shis in Pakistan to change their rit- rituals to streamline them more with other forms of Islam to make it more acceptable to Sunnis to abandon bloody morning rituals, but precisely all of this is really condoned from, from the center since it's an expression of the essence of uh, Shi Islam. And so everyone is trying to, I wouldn't say instrumentalize, but really use this transnational authority of scholars who are far away and who also usually don't write in Urdu and are not involved in these debates to claim that we can speak on their behalf – and in order to make particular interventions in the local Pakistani scene. So also, what's happening as far as language is concerned, you know, the texts are translated from Arabic and Persian into Urdu, then becomes extremely fascinating and interesting in this regard.
0: Yeah, it's interesting the ways in which you know this 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 phenomenon is both hierarchical and non-hierarchical. Hierarchical in the sense that there's still some something to which that they're referring to, um, but non-hierarchical in the sense that they they. The, the the centers are are merely references they are not the the, the drivers the local actors themselves are are driving um, and is it safe to say that they're they the driving force of their ideas um, but they are referring to the centers for legitimation um, or or
1: I think yeah. I think this sums it up perfectly better than I could have done. I think Asa, that's that's precisely what I was. I think with my long-winded answer, what I no, was your trying long to say.
0: Long-winded an- answer was great. So speaking of the, the the centers, I want to move on now to one of the most watershed uh, events in you know modern Middle Eastern Islamic world history uh, in the twentieth century, and that's the Iranian Revolution, um, and its re- reception in Pakistan specifically. So in the nineteen 19- 79 revolution, as I'm sure our listeners know, is one of the most significant historical events uh, of the century. We can even call it a rupture from the supposed teleology of history for, for being the first modern revolution to bring into power the institution of clerics. Um, you know, your chapter on the revolution and on, on Khomeini specifically and his ideas and the ways in which they spread uh, explore how they were received in Pakistan, and you just dis- you divide the the reception um, of Khomeini's ideas into three stages. Essentially, um, I'll just outline them briefly, and then maybe we can we can talk about them. So, in the first stage, you say, um, the initial months and years after the downfall of the Shah, which you periodized between 1979 and 1984, uh, when the revolution constituted "quote unquote." background noise to the internal conflicts taking place between Pakistan's own Shi'i community and the state. Um, And it's here like they were the the, the Pakistani uh, intellectuals and ulema were were still trying to figure out what was really happening in Iran. They weren't they weren't really aware Um, but they couldn't divert their attention completely away from it either given that it was a neighboring state it was the sort of the one of the major centers of Shi'ism itself. Um, and it did have implications on them. So the second stage you you, you describe is the rise of one Sayyid Arif Hussein al-Husseini, a prominent cleric who drew from and appropriated uh, and repackaged the revolution for the Pakistani context to close ranks among the country's Shi'is. In a way, he, he seemed to have localized or indigenized the revolution for Pakistan. And then the, the last stage you describe um, is a a full-fledged embrace of the revolution, specifically in the city of Lahore, the, the cultural capital of the country, um, including the embrace of Khomeini's controversial Velayat-e faqih doctrine, the guardianship of the jurisprudent led by one Sayyid Javad Naqfi. So I was wondering if you could briefly describe what each of these stages entailed for Pakistani Shiaism, how they transformed Pakistani Shi'i thought. Um, And for me, I'd really like to, would it be right to say that among the Pakistani Shi'i intellectuals and ulama, that there was a spectrum with regards to the reception of Khomeini's ideas that that went from, on the one end, rejection, then in the center, reappropriation, and then to the other end, replication. So three R's I, I came up with. What 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 are your uh, thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think I wouldn't go so far as to say that anyone actually rejected what was happening in Iran. You know, even I think um, this would be rather tricky to do, since Khomeini and and Iran is extremely or was extremely popular in a in a in a Pakistani context. But I think reappropriation uh, was definitely happening, and then your third R was replication right yeah um, so i think these two um, are both much stronger and we can explain these three stages that i was trying to identify by the fact that in, in the 19 in the early 1980s Pakistani Shiis were really in this very tricky position that they had a military dictator to contend with in uh, in Pakistan. Zia Haq, who had come to power in nineteen seventy seven, and I think the leadership at this time was really extremely careful not to be seen as just working on the behalf of Iran because this would have completely delegitimized their demands that they had towards the Pakistani state. So they were really trying to keep Iran at an arm's length and to acknowledge that the revolution had existed and to praise it in some uh, some terms, but really not to be seen as, you know, working hand in hand with Iran or really taking either – you know, intellectual input or money from all of this. But I think even, you know, also crucial for this time period is really what you have already touched upon, this lack of connection that really existed, because basically this is also the case until today that many of the leading scholars who who were in charge of the major seminaries in Pakistan at this time had received their education in Najaf. So they were also not really familiar so much or had not so much an interest also in, in the context of Iran, and uh, it's interesting that they also made sense of the revolution in very South Asian terms at this time. So I also quote in the book a couple of examples where Khomeini appears somewhat as a or in some way like a superior Muslim Gandhi who focuses on non-cooperation and non-violence. So this is the way how he brings forward or you know, fosters the revolution and then also how that he is conceptualized in certain terms that are very much rooted in South Asian, also Sunni Islam and not so much in a Shi' context. And in the 1980s or in the course of the 1980s this changes somewhat when, as you said, Sayyid Arif Hussein al-Husseini takes over since he also spent a couple of years in Iran, had a close personal interaction with Khomeini. And I think he's still a crucial figure, uh, we could say, for the Shi community in Pakistan. For me, this was also quite striking when I spent really my first longer period of time in Pakistan in two thousand and eleven I got to Islamabad for the first uh, time and I had in mind the cheese where this oppressed minority in Pakistan who were basically invisible and then you come to the capital and suddenly you see pictures of say uh, uh, say Hus- uh, Hussein Hosseini on every lamppost in in Islamabad since this was close to the commemoration date of his assassination in 1988 and he was extremely visible in the heart of the city. So I think this also tells you something about the the visibility and the importance of Shi Islam in, in a Pakistani context. And he also was under intense pressure. He was often asked to what extent the Iranian revolution could be replicated in, in Pakistan and what this all should mean, the uh, Iranian system of government, the guardianship of the cleric, to what extent he was also int- he, to what extent he would also be interested in implementing this in a Pakistani setting and he would always reject any of these suggestions by claiming, you know, Iran was only an inspiration as far as the economy was concerned and these sorts of things to uh, to have a more just economic system but there was no interest in, in revolution and they wanted to work within the framework of the current Islamic state and so I think it's really only uh, a, a younger generation of scholars who have been entirely educated in in Iran for a long period of time who are now nowadays willing to embrace the revolution and also scolding Iran and they would also scold Iran for not really doing enough and bringing about revolutionary change in Pakistan. And for them, the Lebanese Hezbollah has emerged really as a model that uh, shows the way how even in a minority situation, you could try to impose your will on a political system.
0: Well, that's a great transition into the the next question that I wanted to ask. And it it relates to your fifth chapter in the book, which you title Longing for the State. Um, and here you make a very important intervention with regards to how we understand sectarianism in, this, in South Asia and arguably the Middle East as well. Um, I like that you draw attention to the important work done by Osama Makdisi in Lebanon, where he demonstrates how sectarianism, as we understand it today, is a quintessentially modern phenomenon, quote-unquote, intimately tied to the emergence of the nation-state. But I also like that you draw from another scholar, Faisal Devji, who problematizes the approach to sectarianism that focuses entirely on material interests to the exclusion of ideas. And I think that's crucial, especially given how much of today's scholarship tends to gloss over the significance of texts and ideas. And this, of course, continues to be a sensitive discussion both in our post Edward Said Academy as well as in public public discourse. Um, So I was wondering if you could share a little bit with us about your methodological approach um to the texts and to these ideas and your findings concerning sectarianism with reference, with reference to actors in Pakistan after the Iranian revolution
1: sure no I, I mean you're right that Faisal Devji's work has been extremely influential for me also in shaping the ways how i would think about sectarianism in Pakistan because he really makes this crucial inter- intervention also to emphasize the importance of Pakistan as this contested political idea and that we see a struggle over what Pakistan should mean as a homeland for Muslims in South Asia since its inception, that it had always been contested and an unfinished project to a certain extent. And I think in this context of really still not being completely worked out, the Iranian revolution came in and offered a rival political project, you know, like an, a very interesting uh, fusion of uh, you could say theocratic and republican instrument uh, uh, oh. sorry uh, elements that would um that, that could really also be a model how to construct an, an Islamic state. And Pakistan was still struggling with all of these ideas, and suddenly you had the revolution emerging next door. And in my view, as I, as I, how I approached these, the texts from the time period from the 1970s, 1980s, what I would say is happening is that the political really takes center stage in these uh, sectarian debates, because what people have often pointed out the importance of Saudi Arabia in fostering sectarian violence and animosity in a Pakistani context. They would point out in particular that uh, there were certain figures from uh, we could say Salafi angle from the South Asian Ahli Hadith tradition who were educated in Saudi Arabia at the Islamic University in Medina that was founded in the 1960s and then came back to Pakistan and this was sort of seen as the model of how of Saudi involvement and, and how the story goes as far as sectarianism spread but when you look at the writings of these figures in the 1960s 1970s these are mostly really Salafi arguments about Shi. Islam. So uh, doctrinal issues are at the forefront. That the Shiis would believe in the corruption of the Quranic texts. That they have um, despicable views on on the imams. That they are guilty of polytheism and these sorts of things. So classic anti-Shi arguments that are then repackaged and made quite um, prominent and uh, you know like available to to a wider audience. But the there's not really any discussion of Shi's being a political problem. And this changes in the nineteen eighties after the Iranian Revolution when also different groups take over the mantle of anti Shi sectarianism. These are no longer Salah, indigenous Salafi groups, but these are the Obandi scholars who precisely focus on the political aspects of Shi Islam and how Shi'is are a problem because they would undermine with their criticism, of, for example, of the companions of the Prophet. You know, this is no longer simply a, a, an issue of Aqida, of, of creed, but it's really a way for them to undermine support among Sunni populations for the caliphate, which Pakistan ultimately uh, should uh, aspire to become. And then we really see very much a shift as far as emphasis and a completely the complete flavor of these sectarian discourses is concerned. And in order to appreciate this, as you also pointed out in your in your comment, I think it's really important also to take a sectarian polemic uh, or polemic seriously, so that we can also appreciate what's happening and how things are shifting. And of course, I'm not saying you know that this is the the silver bullets that explains everything and of course there are also material uh, concerns and all of this is is involved as well and I'm sure local conflicts play a particular role but an overarching uh, the overarching picture I think I'm able to modify with my approach that um, this is not just a Uh, conspiracy that is hatched uh, abroad and uh, there was sectarian harmony in a Pakistani setting and then suddenly these these discourses get imported. But it's very much a Pakistani story that just becomes exacerbated by these external events and uh, that uh, sort of explode after the occurrence of the Iranian revolution.
0: Yeah, Simon, your book is clearly a, a phenomenal intervention in, in, in several ways. Um, you know, you've cut aclo- across Middle East studies, South Asia studies, Islamic studies. Um, you, you put forth a new understanding of sectarianism. You you argue for a more complex uh, interaction between the internal dynamics of Shi'i Muslims as well as um, the external dynamics between South Asia and the Middle East. You, you give more agency uh, to the actors in South Asia. Um, and you argue for a real, really a new paradigm, uh, you know, that pays attention, that calls for paying attention to the bidirectional flow of ideas between South Asia and the Middle East, rather than rather than a unidirectional one. So, based on your based on your conclusion, um, you know, this is for for our listeners and for myself and for anyone else who's interested in doing transnational or transregional history. Um, you know, how can scholars and students draw from? Your lessons towards a more transnational and perhaps even a global understanding uh, of modern and contemporary Islam. What needs to be done?
1: Ah, that's a <laughs> that's of course really an excellent question. And to a certain extent, I'm I think I'm also trying to do this in in my in my next project to overcome some of these boundaries that we have as far as area studies are concerned that we are maybe also limited often in 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 the way we use sources, you know, that we that we only pay attention to sources in one language that we think important debates take place uh, only in Arabic, for example, or for She's only in Persian. And then we we neglect to see how how often scholars navigate different layers or different languages at the same time. And I think this was especially in Interesting for me to to have some of these figures in a Pakistani context who are very much tied to the So let's say you know the centers of Shi' learning in Iraq and Iran, and are familiar with discourses emerging from there, and are fluent in Arabic and Persian, writing these languages, but at the same time also develop an Urdu personality, which is not so much accessible. Uh, to to the centres where they can develop their own agency and really I'm not I'm not saying that they are disingenuous in in doing so but they are just emphasise different aspects to uh, a local audience in a Pakistani context so I think just to flesh out how they navigate these different settings and environments is uh, I think crucial and this happens in many more contexts than I'm sure um than, than I'm able to show in this book and i'm sure there's much more room to explore such dynamics and in general I think also the question of reception and reworking of certain aspects you know not so that even maybe a, a faithful acknowledgement of authority elsewhere doesn't preclude you from carving out your own niches uh, and really important aspects of authority so i think to to you're not not to be satisfied with simply pointing out influence and also in this present day and age when the middle east and uh, the entire region is really so much seen through the lens of geopolitics where we see the influence of iran and saudi arabia everywhere of you know Qatar and Kuwait, so mm-hmm. to also I think question uh, really the the influence these actors have, and to emphasize the the agency uh, of local actors. And I think that a lot of this opens up, you know, the the door to many uh, very interesting interesting uh, new stories. And and I would also you know encourage to use different uh, sources, you know, travel logs. Uh, periodicals are really fascinating as a source for this time period where we can also overcome some of these issues especially when we study religious scholars who are often extremely polite in their more elaborate academic writings you know they wouldn't name names they would be reluctant to uh, you know call out their enemies so to speak or to engage in any thing that has to do with controversy but um, there are different types of sources where we can get much closer to uh, the personality of, of people and also to flesh out what this really means for them. So I think that's another uh, aspect that I would really encourage colleagues uh, to take a look at.
0: Well, that was very well said, Simon. It's a lot to chew on and I'm really going to look forward to uh, you know being able to really marinate over all of what you just said. And I think uh, to conclude our discussion with one final question before we close off, Um, And as a teaser for our listeners, would you be able to share a little bit about what current projects you're working on and what work of yours we can look forward to reading in the near or distant future? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah I hope it won't be a too distant future uh for you to to wait for until this project finally arrives but at the at the moment I'm really involved with a global history of the Iranian revolution and this is a project that stems out of really my interest or my findings in a Pakistani setting and in particular I would like to focus not so much on the Shi'i world and how this event has been reworked and received in, in these contexts, even though this will also play some role, but I'm much more interested for this current project to recover this moment of 1979 and the early 1980s, when also many Sunni Islamist groups in Tunisia, in Lebanon, in Turkey, in Pakistan, uh, India, obviously – um but also leftist groups in all of these uh, countries as well were highly fascinated uh, highly fascinated by the events taking place in Iran and they um, were really intrigued and were asking themselves many questions this questions this led them to uh, reconceptualize how they would approach uh, politics how they would use political vocabulary how they would for example, rediscover the social question that had been so important in an Iranian context. So many of these things, and then also drawing in or drawing together material from South Asia and the Middle East is also proves to be extremely fruitful, since at this time, you know, I've been going over Islamist journals from this time, and you see the same texts also really traveling from Pakistan and being picked up by an Islamist newspaper in Kuwait, then it's published in Tunisia, then it reappears in Lebanon, and all of these debates are really connected, but at the same time also really localized, and trying to tie all of this together is what I will be doing over the next couple of years.
0: That sounds like a fascinating and interesting project. I'm really excited to be able to have an opportunity to read that. And I really want to thank you, Simon, for being on the show today with us. Um, I enjoyed our discussion and I, 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 you know, I wish you all the best.
1: Thank you, Asad. And thank you for all your very uh, precise and very stimulating questions. And it was really a pleasure. And I look forward to all further reactions also to the book. And thanks so much for giving me this opportunity today.